All right. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep talking here, Wendy, and then you just jump in when you when you need to. Uh, that sounds better on my end. So, um, so, so what I was saying, and I know it's probably hard to hear with the double was that basically with our current state with the graduates we have coming out of our veterinary classes each year, it's leaving us with 20 new equine vets that will stay in practice. So obviously that's not sustainable at all. And so, um, Dr. Steele listed, you know, several things that she felt like that um, people could could do for horse owners to, you know, to nurture the relationship with they have that they have with their current vet, just to try and keep those vets the best they can. And um, and these were pretty much in line. I'll go over a little bit later what the subcommittees at the AAP are coming up with, but what, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, she said, you know, that people have to budget for their horse care and pay at the time of service. And that is huge because we're not accountants, we're veterinarians. And if you have to hire an accountant, then that's um, more staff that's not directly affecting the horses and expect to be able to haul in. And this is an issue that that I kind of have a, a question about, and I get it. I mean, when you are, when you're already trying to service more clients than you have the time for, if you have to drive, then that's very hard. And I, so I think that hauling in, of course, is much easier on the veterinarian. But is it best for the horses and for the horse owners? And and I don't believe that it is. So I'm hoping that if we can create more veterinarians. Um, then we at least have the option. Yes, everybody should have a horse that loads and they should have access to a horse trailer. But do I think that everything that your horse needs to be seen is it the best? Um, I don't know that that's that that's ideal. So but in the meantime, that's what we have. Um, there's another veterinarian that wrote several articles for our uh, Equal Management uh, magazine that I get that comes along with my uh, copy of Equus. I get it from the uh, or the horse. I don't remember that is part of my membership in AAEP. And uh, she wrote several articles and um, here she gives a description of what she thinks equine practice is going to look like in this new time of fewer equine vets. So, um, and I don't disagree with anything she's saying, but I don't, I hope this is in our future forever. So what she's basically saying, um, fewer middle income clients, but still plenty of wealthy clients with horses and demanding high level of services. Thriving equine practices near urban areas and, but rural areas, depending primarily on a mixed animal practice um, or they might even have to depend on some kind of a paraprofessional, like a, a like the um, human medicine has their physician's assistance because there's just no equine vet or mixed animal vet available. Um, she says expect the horse population to decline as horse owners are priced out of the market. Uh, there will you'll still have some private equine practices, but um, there's going to be a shift to more larger equine hospitals and many of those will be corporately owned and we're already seeing that happening and fees for services will be, be very much higher to bring equine vet salaries in line with small animal uh, vet compensation 
and you'll see emergency cooperative um, cooperatives will form in many errands, uh, areas and the clients will will be um, you know going to these hospitals which will probably be corporately owned but that's where they'll go for their after hours care or emergencies and most practices will require emergencies to be hauled in we talked about that and if the horse is unable to haul in, there'll be a significantly higher rate, you know, for an ambulatory visit, which, which I do believe that if you are going to have, you know, the vet come to you, obviously that needs to be, you need to pay for that privilege. And, um, and I always, you know, I mean, there's always going to be a, a, a fee, you know, for oh, that, that visit. Dr. Ward, we're going to see if my mic works now. Okay. How's that sound? Yeah, that's good. Okay, I turned off a setting, so I think I got it. So just to kind of go back a little bit, basically, are we already in this crisis? We Is are. This oh, very, we're in the middle of it. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, we are working on things to make it better, but, you know, you, you don't graduate. You know, it's, it's right now the program is eight years to get a, a veterinary degree. So, uh, you know, the 20 vets a year, it's going to take us some time to be able, I mean, we need probably four or five times that. So basically what we're dealing with is the fact that, that veterinarians are aging out, veterinarian, yep. veterinarians are uh, dropping out of practice, um, and we don't have enough veterinarians coming in, and they haven't been coming in for quite a while. Exactly. Yeah, this, this problem has been developing, and, and we just weren't seeing it until until we started not having vets and you just you know you you don't you know change the the direction of the titanic on a titanic on a dime you know we we are already in the in the problem and yes we'll make changes now but we're going to go through a rough rough patch yeah i just want to check everybody is the sound okay with my mic on and dr ward's mic on um now that i think i figured out the setting Good for you. I'm impressed. I, I just was like, I got to figure this out. And when, yeah. um, because it's such an important topic. And, um, you know, so, I mean, there are people are saying that they've lost several equine vets in their area and they're much more limited, um, you know, limited emergency services. Okay, great. Everybody says everything's good. So what good. that little oh, button I turned off. Job, I'm so glad we figured it out. Um, so, so now, you know, the, the reason we're not going to see this turn around anytime soon is because, A, vet school is so ridiculously expensive that nobody can afford it unless yes. they come out with a huge load of debt or they're wealthy to start with and then they don't do it. Right. Um, B, you know, when I was thinking about it, um, back when I was a kid and people were going to vet school, you had a lot more farmers. And so you had mm -hmm. people that were used to the kind of kind of work of working with large animals. And we're not just talking horses. We're talking cattle and pigs and mm -hmm. sheep and... Um, so they were coming off of farms and they were coming into the into the practice. And so they had a different perspective on what a day is going to be like. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, because yep. it's it's a long day. It's a hard day. And, um, you know, it's and we're having not not that uh, just to be honest, we have less men coming into large animal veterinary practice and um, women will want to have a family and that will take them out of the industry when they, you know, at least for a period of time. Um, but we don't have the men coming in anymore. Is that because it's just financially not so viable or is there another reason why we see that? You know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know on that, but the only thing I can say is it may be more from a 
man's point of view, having to be the primary um, income, you know, for the family. It, they're they're looking at how you know I've got literally what the the number that I have seen in many places is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars debt, and that's just that just covers your veterinary school, not your um, undergraduate work or your truck or your equipment or anything else. You know, it just it it I can't even like I say I I graduated with with practically no debt. And I'm pretty sure, you know, this was quite some time ago, but I'm pretty sure my starting salary was $1,000 a month. And I remember being thrilled because that was like three times what I'd been living on in vet school. And I, just, you know, I just couldn't have been more excited. I, and I worked for the vet that I had um, worked for before I went to school. So I came out of school with a job and he didn't let me go on any calls by myself, I'm sure for many, many months. So I was basically being paid to learn and I, you know, and I didn't have to have a huge salary. All I had, I had a little apartment, you know, one bedroom apartment, which was like a, a Taj Mahal to me because I, in vet school, I shared a two bedroom apartment with three, with three of us so that we could have pasture for our horses and slept on the couch in the living room for three years. So, I mean, like to have my, I mean, it was just like a, it was just like such a, a wonderful step up in life. And I can't, I can't even imagine these veterinarians now that are graduating with this kind of debt. And of course they are demanding higher salaries. They, they have to, but how does a practice justify, you know, paying a $140,000 salary right now? I have on my notes somewhere, the average salary for uh, vets that graduated in um, 16 through 2019 is about 89,000. Well, obviously that's not getting the job done. That's for a, a, a large animal practice, I believe it was. And so, you know, but how, how are the practices going to be able to pay these really high salaries while they're, while they're training the vet? Because Grant, you know, we get a lot of information in vet school, but we don't know how to apply it. You know, we don't have the experience. And um, so it's, it's, I mean, I can definitely see it from both sides. So what I come back to, all of these models that are being presented to correct the problem are all based on the fact that the cost of education will never go down. And, really? Uh, yes, that, that, is what, that is what comes out of the mouth. It's like, obviously, the cost of education is not going to go down, so we're going to have to you know, have these scenarios that, that I mentioned that, you know, people are going to have to have the higher salaries and, and people are going to have to haul their horses in and, and we're going to price horses out of the middle class and only, you know, independently wealthy people will be able to have horses. I just, I reject all of that. So, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I have so many questions about this. One of which is, you know, having large animal vets is vital to our, our, our whole ec economy in terms of agriculture and farming. And if you don't have those large animals, that's not just, I mean, horses is one part, but cattle, sheep, pigs, you know, those all require large animal vets. If somebody doesn't figure out that we have to get more vets in just bulk numbers, not just. Well, they're, they are, they're, they're planning to get the vets in, but I'm not sure that we're going to have the animals left for the vets to work on. If we if we go along the the current you know path, you know I think a big wow. part of the challenge is that 
the vet schools are there the requirements to get into vet school as far as as gpas are are so high um that you're you're eliminating a very large number of veterinarians that would be incredible veterinarians but they're not academic geniuses and you know it's just i just i don't really agree with you know grade point average being the criteria to get an interview and yet it is i mean i have a good friend of mine her her daughter she's a she graduated when i did she's got a mixed animal practice and her daughter grew up helping her in her practice and was you know helping her in surgery and when she's five years old and has shown animals and worked with every imaginable animal out there she um paid out of state tuition to go to Texas A&M. She did all the things, joined all the clubs, worked um, through school, got to know everybody and didn't even get an interview. And um, she was accepted in the University of Missouri, but she had a good GPA. It just wasn't a 4.0. And so, you know, it, it, this is a young woman who's just going to be a spectacular veterinarian. But so so we're not she was not even didn't even get a chance for an interview to to explain her her goals in life, which was to be in a mixed animal practice. So what we're seeing is there's, you know, it's kind of like there's so many different factors. It's like a prickly pear. There's so many different factors affecting this. The, the cost of school, the grade point average, the yeah. the idea that there's, you know, for me, I would think that it would be really important to have some subsidies for people going into large animal practice just for our agriculture, just in general. Right. Um, the right. population um that's choosing to go we we instead of looking at academics we need to look at um you know application that they already have an application or they're already experienced in handling yeah. animals and that we're going to have to do so much thinking outside the box because when you, when you stay within that box of you're going to graduate with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt just expect that then then none of it really works so not you know to give some hope to the situation there yeah. is a pilot program and i'd never heard of this school but it is uh lincoln memorial memorial university and they have a um, new veterinary program that they're bringing out that is focused on the equine practitioners and i went through and looked at all of their information i think it's a fabulous step in the right direction so and so what it is instead of an eight-year program you actually have a two and a half years of pre-vet which now i believe it's four years that are required and um, your undergraduate and doctoral pro doctoral program are done within six and a half years instead of eight and and to make it more affordable they also just like you said they are trying to offer as many scholarships as they can and this program is really reaching out to those that want to do an equine program. And if they sign up into the program and uh, maintain, I think it's a GPA was a much more doable. I think it was like 3.375 or something. I mean, you know, I mean, that's still a very intelligent yeah. person, you know, that can think and take a test. And if you maintain that level, you're guaranteed into the school. And I think they have 40 spots available. I, so, I think I actually had a booth next to them at the USPC annual meeting last January. 
Yeah. So it is, it's, it's, you know, so that's definitely a step in the right direction. And, you know, you get your, you, you, they are focusing on equine, but you go through and you do have all species. So if you go into a mixed animal practice food animal, you have that option. So I think that I'll be very excited, but there again, we're still looking at six and a half years from now. Right. Okay. So, so, my, so my thing is that I want to throw out to people is our people open to having our veterinarians being species specific? Uh, aren't they, aren't they like equine vets species specific as it is? No, you go, when you, when I went through vet school and it's still that same way oh. now, you're, you're being taught all the species and the focus is primarily on small animal. Right. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, so what about we, we create a side, not, not, not change anything about our current, you know, veterinary programs and, and keep this program at LMU and, and hopefully maybe some additional ones, because this sounds like an incredible program for someone that wants to come in and, ha- you know, be a mixed animal practitioner. But like for myself, I knew I wanted to be equine and that's, that's all I wanted to do. And I think of how many hours I spent in small and you know learning about small animal anatomy and treating you know diseases and all the clinics and everything that i could have put into equine and done it in a two-year program and and gotten out of school with a species specific veterinary degree and you could also do the same program for food animal or exotics and if you, you know, if you have that person that's like, no, I want to be able to, I want all my options open, then you do the eight-year program. But what if you create a program that has a basic, um, you know, entrance exam to make sure you're proficient in math and science and, and all of those things, but you focus, a, you do two years of classroom and clinics that are only equine focused, and then one year of a paid internship and then you pass a, an exam to graduate. So basically it's a three-year program, but the last year is spent in clinics yeah. being paid while you learn. Um, what, would, what, would you guys, you know, what would you guys think about that? So, so I've got some comments here. And um, you know, I, the one thing I want to say is you're thinking, how do we solve this problem long-term? Exactly. Which, is, which we really have to focus on. And that's I hope that there are discussions like this going on in AAP, in the vet schools, between the vet schools and in the educational system, because so much of that conversation needs to be happening at the educational system level of how do we solve this problem? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because one person saying it's awkward for me that my wonderful equine vet won't go near my dairy cow. I have one and his stance is it may, uh, you know, and that's his stance and it makes it hard on her. So. So I think there's pros and cons to species specific and, and general practice. But the, again, those are back to the educational process and what's going to happen going forward to get people in, solve the financial problem. Because right. somebody's asking, like, why are vets dropping out? You know, and besides the cost, the hours. The, the hours job. and the danger. The yeah. danger of treating horses is... Um... And like you said, you know, a lot of our graduates are not being brought up in a ranching environment where you you know how to work with horses and um, and the horses are 
not necessarily going to say gentle, but they're they're handled on, and worked on a regular basis. And our horses are actually getting uh, less gentle, I think, in many cases, um, as as um, less emphasis is is on horsemanship, you know, and you know. So I, I think that's that's one of the things that I wanted to comment that I think is is one of the most important things you can do to keep your veterinarian wanting to come out is you work with your horse so that that the, the, the horse is not a danger, you know, to your veterinarian. Well, and, and Beth is commenting that horse owners need to make sure that there's a safe area for vets to treat their horses and facilities and make it easy for the local vet to be so that they can cover the, like safety is important. I know one vet in Colorado and she's out of equine practice because she got so badly injured. Yes. So, so, um, okay, so we know that on the education level, on the long-term picture, we've got to solve these problems of cost, um, who we're choosing, how long the program is, and how to make it better to get more qualified, meaning not just smart people, you know, not just GPA. Right, yes, exactly. Right? You know, the, the people that, that actually, like you say, grew up with AMLA, and one thing with this LMU program is they're putting a lot of emphasis on the people they accept in the program that you grew up working with horses, which right. I think, I mean, there's so much good about this program. And, um, you know, the only, only bad thing is that it's six and a half years and I think we need them sooner. And, yeah. you know, but, um, but no, I just, I've just been thinking about it and the feedback is really valuable. So maybe it's not strictly equine, but maybe it's a track that is, um, Large animal, you know, versus small animal. Small animal. Yeah, because the emphasis is you're doing both large and small, and that's that's a huge chunk. So so, but I want to move on from this topic a little bit. But before we leave it, here's my question. What can we as horse owners do to help affect change in the educational process so that uh, our voice is being heard in terms of you know, we need more vets. What are you guys doing about it? Right. Well, I know that I know that the AAP is very uh, on on this subject. And I, I talked with Dr. Foley, David Foley, and he's, you know, working in the committees with the AAP. And when I called AAP and I wanted to present my proposal for a species specific program, and he was very, I mean, he called me back, he, you know, they said, let me, you know, get get somebody to call you and he called back within 30 minutes and has been very interested and you know of course he said the the challenges are going to be that that would mean that the curriculums would have to be kind of rewritten and the the um, uh, boards would have to be rewritten but I just um, I'm such a and both person than an either or yeah so you know why can't we keep everything the same and you just take the questions out of the board exams that are species specific and put them into a test. And I mean, I just, I think it, the, the biggest thing is going to be, does the public want that? Does the public want a vet that is more species specific or do you want a vet that can treat all of your animals? And I question on that is that, are you going to get the in-depth quality of care and and maybe that's the thing. Maybe you have you know maybe you have your your um, vet that you know that graduates a program like this LMU program where there is more emphasis on the equine, but they still have the small animal experience. But then you are um, 
going to a referral hospital for more of your um, technology, your uh, more expensive diagnostics and your surgery. You know, it's just, for, for me, I, you know, I, in, I loved being able, being an ambulatory veterinarian. I had a little small clinic that, you know, people could bring animals to if it was like a laminitis case or something I could work with. But most of mine was ambulatory and I enjoyed that. I felt like the horses were the most comfortable in their home environment. And if they were injured, I didn't, you know, necessarily think that it was ideal for them to be loaded and hauled to me if I could get to them. If I couldn't, then they, you know, the clients were willing to do it. And I just think for me personally and for the horse owners and the horses that this sort of corporate model of veterinary medicine I, I don't, I, I would hate to see things go that way. But like I say, I, I graduated, you know, 40 years ago. Maybe, maybe that's what people want. I, you know, I'm just curious to hear from people. Uh, and so, so let's put it out to the chat there that, uh, you know, are you, so what is the question specifically that I can pop out to my audience? The, the question is, is would people rather have a veterinarian that can come to them that maybe doesn't have the ability to do MRIs and, and um, you know, a, a digital x-ray machine and all the, you know, super expensive equipment, but that can come to them and see horses for, you know, routine things, or do they prefer to have these larger corporate clinics that you haul into, but they do everything and, and all your diagnostics are there and they can handle everything that your horse could ever need? That, that's kind of my question. I'm not saying that we have to have one or the other, but what is, you know, what is working out there for people now? And I think one of the uh, spokes of this is, is distance. Yeah. You know, so um, if you had, if, you know, if you're living in a very rural area, you're most likely going to have to haul into any kind of a clinic to get any significant level of diagnostics. Right. Um, if you're living in, I am so fortunate. I live in an equine dense and veterinarian dense area because I'm right. in the Northern Virginia, um, you know, vets will still come to me. Um, my horse actually lives at Joyce Harmon's house. That's been very yeah, convenient. That's the end. <laughs> um, but there are vets and, and I have, you know, I have a full vet hospital, you know, in an hour and a half drive if I need yes. to get Right. right. So I'm I'm quite fortunate in where I live. So, OK, so we have this one question about the education system. How how can we a revamp the education system to have more large animal vets and how willing are people in that case, you know, to have it consolidated versus the vet come to you? And it's kind of like, you know, when you think about human medicine, you, 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 I actually was at a clinic in Colorado and I got sick and there was a doctor that made a house call. Mm -hmm. He was so handsome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I can remember, I was like, Oh my God, this guy made a house call. And I was very, I was very ill. Um, but you know, normally we're, we're having to go to the doctor at this point. Right. So, um, and then if we need a bigger hospital, we go to the big regional hospitals and it's kind of that model for humans. But you know, there's so many other questions on this topic that I really want to kind of talk to you about. Um, and I think that the education part really needs to be addressed. I think it needs, like I said, needs to be addressed by the schools, by the, the associations, AAP, the board certifications, all that to, to figure that out. But at the same time, we're in the middle of the crisis. Right. So, so here we are as horse owners 
And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the AAETT, the American Association of Equine Therapists and Technicians. Which, no, but I wanted to address that kind of topic as well. So, so go ahead, tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, so, um, so basically what they're trying to do is certify people uh, in the ability to do different modalities. And, you know, in this country, unlike in Europe, in Europe, an animal physical therapist, it's a four-year degree. And you come out as an animal physical therapist from right. your four-year degree and you do physical therapy and the vets refer the horses to the physical therapist who does the therapy. In this country, A, we can't even use the term physical therapist because yes. it's trademarked. Yep. B, we've done the model of large facility that you send your horse to where it lives for several months without you being involved necessarily in the treatment plan. And then it comes home and it, everything's supposed to be wonderful. Yep. Um, but at the same time, we have a lot of people with a wide range of skills and modalities that are in the field with every state having a different uh, legislative requirement for what you can and cannot do, whether it's with a vet, without a vet, you know, whether it's hands-on or whatever. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, uh, if you're, if you've thought about how can we have like physician's assistants, veterinary assistants that are trained people that can go out and do a certain amount of work so that we don't burn out the large animal vets that we do have, which I think yes. is a huge problem. Right. Um, so that, you know, horse owners can get basic care needs done. The vet can still make money because it's an employee. Mm -hmm. um, they're not burned out. So is that a model that's starting to come into play? I don't think that it is legal yet, but it makes perfect sense to me to be able to send a vet tech out to draw blood, to change a bandage, to do physical therapy, um, to evaluate a nutritional program, to see a new foal. I think there's all kinds of ways that it could, could be used. And I think that definitely is needs to be part of the solution. And luckily the AAP is, is looking at that. And I think that would be fabulous. The, I would take it even a step further is that if we did develop basically a three-year um, yeah. doctorate degree, I think many of our physical therapists would, would jump at, at being a full-fledged equine veterinarian and be able to do whatever modality they wanted and not be harassed by state boards. Right. And, and I think that that might actually, you know, you'd have to grandfather in some people that are practicing now, but if you started that, you're going to eliminate a lot of people that are not, I mean, if you can't devote yourself to a three-year program, to, and, and then you have, you know, then you either have your modalities that you're already doing before you go into it, or you learn those modalities afterwards to add to your practice. That's what I did. And um, to make myself more valuable to my clients, um, then, you know, I think that's, that's a, a pretty small sacrifice to make to have a, a full-fledged DVM degree. And then, the, you know, then if you make a mistake, then he's like any other veterinarian, you can be brought before the boards, but the, but the boards can't come after you because you are a veterinarian. And, and you see what I'm saying there? I, I think I do. Can, can you just kind of condense that a little bit and see if I can wrap my brain around so, it? So I, 
I think that you it, with a right now, I have talked to many people and they ask me, you know, I really don't want to be a conventional veterinarian. I want to be an osteopath or I want to be a chiropractor. Or I want to do acupuncture. Do I have to go through vet school to do that? And I have to answer. Yes, you do legally. Yeah. That's an eight year program, $250,000 worth of debt. It's not an option. But if I could say to people, yes, I would suggest you go through vet school, you get your veterinary degree, you learn about your anatomy and your physiology and pharmacology and all these things. And then you bring on your other preferred modality into that practice as a full fledged equine veterinarian. So basically take, take people that, uh, with these other, uh, educations and, and get them the degree that gives them the DVM so that they have the yes. board certification. Yes. So that they're, because this, every state's so different, right? Yeah. And, well, and, and that would just take that away because what the boards say is like, well, the, you know, the, the lay practitioners are a danger to owners because there's no recourse if they do something wrong. And, and that is a legitimate argument, but if they are a full-fledged veterinarian, you take that argument away. And then the, the other thing is, well, they can't prescribe medications. They can't give injections. And if you're a dentist or, or you know, a, a, you know, you need to be able to give, you know, sedation. And, you know, we would solve just a lot of that adversarial relationship if, you know, if you had a, a reasonable program that that got you a DVM degree in equine or in large animal, if, if that's the, you know, if that's the direction that we need to go. But then, but then you add your other modality onto that. And, and maybe some people, they, you know, their choice is, oh, I'm just going to stay with my modality. I don't want a full service practice, but you still are, you are, can legally practice without being harassed. So I, I think, I think we would have a, a, much wider uh, array of veterinarians to choose from. And you would also have a very um, dedicated group of veterinarians that could, you know, live a very happy, you know, very fulfilling and um, successful, well-paid, have a lot of these things that are missing, but, you know, but have enough veterinarians in your area that, the work was spread around. Yeah, I do. I do think, um, and I've, I've seen, I, um, I'm going to just say this. I find that the veterinary field in general tends to try and be exclusive. Whereas it, my example is in human medicine, you don't have to be a MD to be an acupuncturist, but in veterinary medicine, you have to be a DVM to be an acupuncturist. And so, you know, I, th I don't know, my gut feeling is this was in a way trying to protect income for veterinarians. Um, I don't know if that's true. That's always kind of been the feeling that I had. But the problem is it, it, it takes away a lot of, um, it makes this adversarial kind of relationship between these different people who are well-trained. Yes. Right. And it's the and they have the training. And I'm not saying the fly by night person who just took the weekend massage course. I'm talking about people yeah. who are, are very well trained with degrees and programs and that sort of thing. But it creates such a, a tension. Um, 
that it's, you know, it's only going to exacerbate the problem that we have. And, right. and I really like your idea of let's take these people that are really well educated and then get them through the, the requirements to be a DVM, the, yes. the pieces they don't have, yes. so that, that we have more DVMs. And that would be a great solution for a certain type of situation, right? Right. Um, right. It w- might not eliminate your emergency colic situations if you're an equine dentist. <laughs> Um, well, but if but if you have had if you're a DVM and you know you know what a colic is, you can stabilize that horse and get them to a emergency clinic. I mean, it's not like you're going to forget that. And um, and I think to kind of go back to your question about the sort of um, you know wanting to protect the veterinarian. I mean, if you've gone through eight years of school and you've got two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt and you're struggling to pay your bills and the person down the road has just gone to a weekend course and now they're a chiropractor and your clients are using them and they're, you know, telling you that the chiropractor said this, you know, you can see how it does create a, you know, it's just sort of a setup for an adversarial relationship versus if that person that's doing chiropractic is also a licensed veterinarian, then it takes away you know, uh, it's like, well, they, you know, they paid their dues. They're, right. you know, they're there. And, you know, you know, there may still be some competitiveness, but that's a, that's part of our system. Right. That's, that's right. okay. And that, and that you want the owner to have choice. Exactly. Um, and exactly. the thing is that the fewer vets we have, the fewer choices anybody has, right? Right. We're getting really limited. So, well, and so are they thinking, is that, is that suggestion out there on the wind somewhere? It is. I, I spent my, I sent my proposal to Dr. Foley at AAP and he, he looked at it and he said, he's passing it up the chain, you know, and he came back, you know, with the, the challenges it's, it's going to be with the, um, the boards, uh, you know, that they would have to, and that's where we come in as horse owners. We come in and say, we want this. If we do, you know, it's my idea. It may not, other people may not like the idea, but if enough of us say, you know, I, I am okay with having a different vet to take my small animals to versus my horse. And if, if, you know, and if you've got this, you know, some additional programs like this LMU program where they do, you know, there is an equine emphasis, but they can do the food animals and the small animals as well. I mean, you know, if we just graduate a lot of different types of, of uh, not levels of schooling, but just uh, focus of schooling. Right. You're, you're not going to have any any less. Um, you, you know, you're, you're going to have the same exposure to the knowledge that you have going through the eight year program. You're just going to spend your time on your species and right. not necessarily learning something, you know, learning a species that that you don't ever have intention of practicing. And it may change this, too, that you know, that you practice for a few, you know, you're not going to have the situation where somebody thinks that equine medicine looks really glamorous until (laughs) they start doing it. And then they're dropped out after three years, you're going to know what you're getting into. And that's what you want to do. And, and the LMU program is the same thing that I, you know, they, they focus on um, internships and um, you know, as part of their veterinary program. And I think that is really important and yeah. if we have that internship in that third year then i think that the the vet school is going to need to set the what the salary is and it might change based on the location or whatever to make sure 
that, you know, they're again, just a, you know, a paid internship where you're, they're paying you, you're learning, they, you know, they're, you're there as a body to, you know, to do a lot of, you know, do a lot of, of jobs as you learn to, but you're supervised. I mean, I just think it'd be a win-win for everyone and, um, and just have, you know, say you don't have to change your current program. I mean, there's more than enough applicants for that eight-year program. But, you know, we'll just, you know, let's offer some additional programs. This LMU program could be one, but I think we could offer a species-specific uh, pilot program as well and see. And then if you just, and then if you decide, you know, I, I'm not doing horses. I, it just is not what I thought or my circumstances change. You go back to school. You go back and you apply for that four-year program and um, be able to, to do your small animals. I mean, it, it's, it's not, there's nothing, I don't see anything in it that is going to be a um, limiting factor. It's, it's almost a like a tiered system. You have, you'd have the, the base and then you'd have your specialty. Isn't that more how, how they do education over in the UK? <laughs> you know, you have like this, everybody needs this one base. Okay. You need to know pharmacology, right? Yeah. Um, and then right. you go off into your specialties earlier and yeah. then if you want to come back and add a specialty, say small animals, you come back and take that right. education. I, I, right. I'm not terrible. Somebody did tell me, I think in the, um, I can't remember if it was the UK, but that, you know, high school is a five-year program. And then, and that's what I'm thinking, you know, immediately out of high school, you apply yeah. for your, uh, the, your specialty that you want to go into. But, you know, there's going to have to, you, you, we may have to beef up our high school. You might have to take a science-based um, high school courses to get you ready to go straight into a doctorate program, or maybe you, your high school didn't offer everything. Maybe you've got to go to community college and study up on your trigonometry, you know, and then get in there. I mean, it's just, yeah, we have to have the science base there. I, I, I totally agree with that, but do we really need four years to, to be able to apply? you know, after high school, another four years of undergraduate, and then a full four years of veterinary school. Right. And, you know, I'm just thinking we, if we make it species specific, we could streamline that. So. Sure. Well, and, you know, like I say, you would probably get just a, I'm, I mean, I've already mentioned it to a couple of, of, um, I even mentioned it to my farrier and she said, sign me up. You know, she, you know, she, these people are very dedicated to what they do and would love to have been veterinarians, but it was just, you know, that's the other thing about the rural um, population is that $250,000 worth of debt is just, yeah. it's just it's, not an option. It's not tenable. So, okay. Yeah. So we have the one thing where it's like, we've got to rethink how we do the education so that we get more, more. Um, or just how, 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 how can we add to the education we already have? Well, that's the second. So the first part yeah. is changing who, who we select for and that well, sort of thing. I would say leave those programs the same. You know, if, if you can make that 4.0 and get into vet school and do every species, go research, whatever, great. But Okay, so then so we got three, three, three things here then. We've got three things. You've got that. You've got the yeah. basic, the way it's done. Then right. you have the one where it's a truncated four years, like six years like this college six and a half instead of eight and, okay and focus you've on also got 
a different yes. selection of uh, 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 having coming up with a different way to select people as yes. opposed yes. to just a four point exactly. Okay. Then you have the idea that the people that are already out in the in the world that are trained in specific modalities could go back for say two years or whatever it takes to get the DVM behind their name. So that you have the well, equine dentist who's trained in dentistry and then they can go and get the whatever years of education they need to get the DVM because well, I think they that would the just DVM. be a subset of people that would go that would be interested in that three year degree. But